Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the following on podcast from Talk Sport England, where they brushed aside the opposition in their two one-day warm-up matches ahead of the first ODI, which gets underway in Cape Town on the 4th of February. No real surprise there, or they were given a little bit of a scare at the top of the order on uh, day one. Uh, Johnny Bairstow, who's been in and out of the test team, really, and uh, some chats surrounding uh, Tom Banton forcing his way into the top of the order for either the uh, World T20 at the end of the year or indeed this ODI series. Well, brushing aside that, to hit 100 and he caught up with uh, Andrew McKenna following play. Bearing in mind you haven't had a, a competitive knock for a while, how pleased were you in the fact that I mean, yesterday you played a glorious cover driver but then out the next ball. You looked in decent touch given that you've actually had a, a lack of middle practice. Yeah, that's right. Um, you obviously go away and you work hard in the nets, don't you? So um, any any time that you get a chance to spend in the middle um, going into a series is important. It is ridiculously hot. Just give us an explanation of what it's like having all of that batting kit on, the helmet on for a couple of hours when you're batting. I mean, you're having to take on a lot of fluid and also imagine having to tell yourself down every few overs. Uh, yeah, look, it's hot, but it's, it's dry heat, so it's, it's not too bad. I mean... When you go to Sri Lanka and these kind of places, it's, it's, it's humid. So uh, the dry heat here is actually it's quite nice to play in. Um, yeah, it's when it starts getting humid and then you start losing a lot of fluid at uh, uh, in a very short space of time, which then obviously assaults a diminishing uh, dehydration comes in. Is that something that obviously as batsman and a wicket keeper you obviously then have to keep an eye on because you've got to have to put the kit on once again and, and go out there for potentially another 50 overs with all the keeping gear yeah I mean it's not something that I've not done not done for a while so um, it's it's part and parcel of your job and we, we follow the sun around uh, around the world um, and you, you've got to get used to uh, taking the fluids on board playing in the heat and, uh, and the coping strategies that go with it looking at today compared to yesterday was it maybe a case today that having had a look at the opposition bowlers, things maybe felt a little bit more comfortable for a team? You, you seem to play more of an England-type innings today uh, as a unit, maybe more compared to yesterday. I, th- I think it's uh, interesting that because 
Obviously the last time that we played together was the World Cup final, so you can't just expect a group of people to come together and there's some people that have uh, been playing in different conditions, whether that be in Bangladesh, some people haven't played that much, some people have played in Australia, so no matter what there's going to be some bedding in time. Two games to get yourself ready for Tuesday's first One Day International. Um, are you on a personal level where you feel you need to be going into that? Absolutely. I mean, it's going to be great fun, isn't it? Cape Town's a, an amazing ground. Um, it's going to be a competitive series, and uh, and that's that's why we want to be playing. Look, the guys, obviously, after the summer that we had, um, want to really put our authority back on. We've got a lot of work to do over the next four years to try and... Uh, retain that that trophy. Punchy as ever and uh, it's good to see Johnny Bairstow back in the runs at the top of the order uh, no doubt uh, he'll be looking forward to uh, getting underway as we all are really at TalkSport. Live and exclusive coverage of the ODI and T20 series coming up. Three ODIs and three T20s. We'll have a full preview to the first of those uh, tomorrow on the 3rd of February hearing from uh, both captains in the build up to that uh, match. Alex Tudor jetting into South Africa, as I speak, actually. He'll be part of the TalkSport team, as well as a former South African international, Claire Cow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Before it all gets underway, though, a chance to listen back to a, a great chat that we had in the lunch break on day three uh, at uh, the Wanderers, actually, in the fourth test match. Jarrah Kimber and Neil Manthorpe discussing five South African cricketers you've never heard of, but definitely should have. Oh, you gutsy man, you! William Smith makes the never-say-die-hundred. Four seconds left, two down, what a start for... 
That's even better time. In fact, that's a beauty. And what a good innings. There's 50 there for Jacques Callis. Big shout and given out by umpire Steve Dunn. What a sensational over this is from Sean Pollock. Yes, South Africa have had some incredible cricketers. We're going to talk about some uh, that you haven't heard of as much. I, I think it's worth going back to talk about some of the incredible cricketers that we, we, we won't be able to mention them all because there's so many great ones. Can uh, I just say, listeners, wherever you may be, that this was Jared Kemper's idea to talk about South African cricketers you may not have heard of, but actually it's just an excuse for him to indulge himself in Aubrey Faulkner, who is one of the all-time greats and you have every reason for not having heard of him if you're not a cricket historian or a cricket nuffy so go on Jared let's talk about Aubrey Faulkner and you're right he is a good reason to be obsessed uh let's uh I thought just before we got to Aubrey Faulkner although let's be honest mostly this is going to be about Aubrey Faulkner I don't think we should lie at all there to the listeners uh so, yeah, just some incredible early cricketers that they've had in South Africa. So there was the all-rounder Jimmy Sinclair, who was maybe, man, as I would say, probably one of the first proper fast-bowling, big-hitting all-rounders that we'd ever had in, in Test cricket. Uh, then they had, there was the two Norses, Dudley and Dave, who played over two generations, father and son. Um, and uh, Bruce Mitchell, who... D for me Dudley's career spanning the... Second World War as well. He played over 24 years. Huge career, yeah. And one of my favourite cricketers who doesn't get mentioned very much, Bruce Mitchell, who I always think of as the uh, South African Andy Flower, you know, had this incredible record when no one else was scoring runs and doesn't get remembered at all anymore, sadly. Um, and, and just to put it all in, in context, I mean, we think about South Africa now as this, you know, incredible team, or well, not today, but um, up, up until this series as this incredible team. Um, they they won two of their test series. Uh, they won two test series in their first 42 years of test cricket. Money was so tight in South Africa in the 1920s. If they brought a team over to tour, they wouldn't play a first class um, season at that time. Uh, in 1920s, they didn't even win a first. Uh, they didn't win a test series at all. They were really really struggling back then. But it doesn't mean that they didn't have some incredible cricketers. Private sponsors was the way to go, um, and um, and the gate money, and, the, and the, so businessmen, entrepreneurs, would would either be proactive in inviting touring teams to come to South Africa and then they would keep the gate receipts. Um, or, yeah, I mean, there were various... There was a wee bit of gambling that went on, of course, that um, we don't often refer to. Uh, I don't know why, because that was the reason that cricket became a competitive sport in the first place. But you're right. I mean, um, and remarkably... There were some really big crowds on those early tours to South Africa as well. You know, were the, the very, very first test match when uh, an England team came to South Africa and played at St George's Park, we mentioned this briefly last week from Port Elizabeth, they had a crowd of uh, almost 4,000. I don't know how many shillings they paid, but, you know, it, it apparently was a, a financially feasible operation. So South Africa did struggle early in, in cricket, and that's one reason I want to shine a light on Aubrey Faulkner. So Aubrey Faulkner was an incredible cricketer. Just to start with, he's the first bowler, uh, sorry, the first all-rounder in history. Sorry, I'm going to go back again. He's the only all-rounder in Test match history to average under 30 with the ball and over 40 with the bat. So Sobers didn't do it. Imran Khan didn't do it. Callis didn't do it. Incredible cricketers to come. He, di he didn't play that, that many um, tests, but he was a phenomenal uh, cricketer. He learnt the wrong and... Um, 
uh, from a teammate, Reggie Swartz, who'd learned it in uh, Philadelphia, as we talked about recently, from Bernard Bozenque. Um uh, and he basically perfected the leg, uh, the, the wrong end and the leg spinner and became an incredible bowler. He took six for 17. Um, I think that was at Headingley, bowling his leg spin. Um, and of course, then he went to Australia and he made a double century in Australia as well. Um, he, he, he played in, in the era of Jack Hobbs, um, Sid Barnes and Victor Trumper. And while he probably wasn't quite as good at batting or bowling as any of those guys, he was certainly... Uh, deserves to be in, in, mentioned in probably the top four cricketers of, of that era. I thought you were going to say top four cricketers of all time. and you know, and, uh, But seriously, he's, he's, we talk about great all-rounders and his name is very rarely mentioned. But the 6 for 17 was against England at, in the third test match ever played at uh, Headingley at Leeds in 1907. In that year, he scored 1,288 runs and took 73 wickets. But then he, he settled, or before, didn't he? Settled in England and played for Nottinghamshire. Well, he didn't just play for Nottinghamshire. He actually played for a private um, owner, sort of almost like a Lalit Modi, Kerry Packer type figure who, who owned his own league, a guy called, I think it was Julian Kahn. Um, and he basically was taken out of first-class cricket, so he didn't play that much. The, the year that you're talking about, at what, had we had ICC rankings back when Aubrey Faulkner played, he would have been the number one ranked batsman and the number two ranked bowler at the, uh, within, within the space of about a year of each other. That's how dominant he was. L listeners will be, be curious as to how that works, but from a historian's point of view, um, you, you may explain better than I can, but the, but the wonderful thing about the... Ra player ratings system that was operated that was uh, devised by David Kendix is that it can be backdated it's amazing that you can actually go back through the performances and award points on exactly the same basis that they are awarded now and it does give us I think a very uh, I was going to say very accurate I'm not qualified to say very accurate but it's certainly a very satisfying measure between players of different eras. It certainly gives us a very good idea of just how good um, a player like Aubrey Faulkner was um, he fought in two wars he was in the Boer War, and then he went he, and he volunteered for World War One, and he went one of the longest gaps in, in, in cricket history. He went 12 years without playing. So, as you said, he moved to England, and he basically played private cricket, a little bit of first-class cricket. He played for, like, Archie McLaren's team. But after he came back from World War One, he, he got malaria. I think he was serving in Greece, and he got malaria. And when he came back, he wasn't the physical specimen he was before. And, and they say he was such an attractive man that women used to come to watch him play before World War One. Afterwards, he looked a little bit more like a, a tubby older man who wasn't quite moving that well. But when England toured in 1924, South Africa, sorry, when South Africa toured England in 1924, South Africa were doing so poorly that they asked him to come back and play. And 12 years after his last test, he went out there. And he was still good enough. He got Jack Hobbs to come down the wicket, ripped one past the outside edge. Sadly, the wicketkeeper missed it. And it was a bit of an embarrassing game for Aubrey. And I think he knew he shouldn't be there. He was, uh, uh, I think he was 40, 42 perhaps at the time uh, when he played in that game. Um, but the fact that he was still a good enough cricketer to represent his, his nation then. And, and, but his real legacy for me is, is not so much what he did just on the field, but he went on to start the first ever full-time cricket school. And in that cricket school, incredible cricketers came through. Um, uh, Doug Wright and um, uh, he had uh, Douglas Jardine would be there. Um, Ian Peebles, who ended up being his protege. Um, and he basically started what we think of as modern academy um, sort of cricket. Uh, and it was a very, very basic uh, facility. Um, but sadly, before some of his protégés made it to test cricket, he, he took his own life. 
Um, but incredible the imp impact he had on two countries um, and, and the nations. And um, he, he had this very peculiar thing. He, as I said, he became a coach and a very well-respected coach. But he used to coach himself when he went out to bat. And opposition players used to laugh. He used to walk off the square leg going, shouldn't have played at that one. You shouldn't have played at that one. You're better than that. Keep your hands closer to your body. Um, and he would do this all inning. So if he made a double hundred, he would literally spend a day and a half talking to himself. Must have really annoyed the opposition bowlers. You mentioned the fact that uh, he was basically a freelancer who was uh, played for this. Uh, equivalent these days would be something like the Earl of Carnarvon's eleven. Um, but in 1921, I'm not sure if he, I don't think he mentioned this. He scored a against the touring Australians. He made 153 and took six for 64 as the touring Australians were beaten. He was 39. He was 39 years old and he made 154 and, and took six for 64. Incredible Australian team as well. An incredible Australian. That, that bowling attack was probably one of the first great bowling attacks Australia ever had. And, and he did that at 39 against them. E.W. Swanton, the great uh, English cricket writer, wrote his, uh, his uh, obituary in uh, the Wisden Almanac. And uh, the phraseology, I mean, today we, we know exactly how we would phrase it, but he, he said... He was afflicted by melancholia. He died tragically by his own hand. Today, we would know that as depression. Um, and he gassed himself, didn't he, at, at, the, um, at the, the cricket school that he started. Yeah, it's, look, it's an incredibly sad story. His, um, his fiance, I think, I don't think he was married, had to take back his, um, his South African top. He'd gifted it, to, gifted it to one of his protégés. And she had to take it back because it had gold buttons. And she actually needed to melt down the gold buttons for money. Look, it, I, the reason that, you know, when I was writing my book about the history of Test cricket, you know, for me, he was, he was really inspired me to, to look into these sorts of cricketers because he is an undoubtedly one of the greatest cricketers who has ever lived. And yet he, no one talks about him anymore. Um, he's not remembered. And he didn't just have an impact as a player. He had an impact as a coach. So, uh, you know, just an incredible story. But there's been many, many other cricketers. And we're, somehow I'm going to pull myself away from the great Aubrey Faulkner um, to talk about some of the others. One that I've always been quite obsessed with. So I moved to the UK in 2008. And I'd turn on the, the, the TV and I'd watch the, uh, the T20 games, occasionally head down to Lords. And there was a guy called Tyron Henderson who would be there smashing the ball absolutely out of sight and then taking wickets everywhere in T20 cricket. So Tyron Henderson in, in T20 cricket, he, he averaged 20 with a bat with a strike rate of 142, which in early T20 cricket is almost Andre uh, Russell type figures. And he took 93 wickets, averaging 23 with an economy of 7.22. Now, he then became almost famous for a couple of minutes when he signed an IPL contract. Do you remember how much the IPL contract was for? 780,000 US dollars. And how many games did he play? Three. How much is that per game? Over a quarter of a million dollars per game. <laughs> And, and it turned out that as good a cricketer he was, he was coming towards the end of his career at that point, wasn't he? I think had he been picked for his prime in, in T20 cricket, I think he would, he would have been a good IPL player. But by that stage, he was maybe not quite the batsman he'd been well, when he was younger. So what happened, as I recall, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but he was basically the victim, if we can call it that, of a bidding war between the Mumbai Indians and uh, the Chennai Super Kings, two of the biggest, richest IPL franchises in the very earliest days of the IPL. And, and it, talk about stars aligning, because remember he got a contract with Middlesex in the, what was it called then, Nat West Blast? Yeah, it would have been, wouldn't it? Mm, I think so. And Middlesex reached the semi-final, and 
to be fair, Tyron Henderson had had a modest uh, output for Middlesex, but in the semi-final, critical moment, televised everywhere, um, all around the world, and there are two Indian franchise owners, multi-millionaires, who both happen to be watching the semi-final. Tyron Henderson, and it was something needed like... 30 off the last two overs and he smashed it and he produced this incredible performance and these two billionaires decided that that was the man they wanted no no didn't didn't know very much about him that he was coming towards the end of his career so the IPL auction they wanted him they bidded and bidded and bidded and he got 780,000 when he got to the Mumbai Indians they realized that he wasn't quite the full package that they thought he was it was Rajasthan Royals and it, but that, that, it actually gets funnier because they were known as the Moneyball team, and yet they picked a guy who was basically the end of his career. But, but you're right, it was. I, I think it was the owners who got very excited by him. I think they were in England at the time he played that innings. Um, and that was pretty much it. Wasn't the IPL almost the end of his career? He didn't play much cricket after that. That's right, yeah. Well, he didn't need to. Um, he came, came from um, East London, uh, very modest, uh, m- modest background. But I can tell you that... Um, he now um, helps his wife run her entertainment corporate hospitality business, and he's bought himself a five-bedroomed house on the banks of the Ganubi River in East London, and he's a very content man. I'm assuming no mortgage. Uh, no. Um, he came from a family of cricketers as well, didn't he? I, I, think, he's, I think his family um, actually played. So he, he was an incredible story, but he, he was one of the first sort of uh, what would you say? One of the first sort of T20 flare-up players. We've seen a few, uh, uh, you know, since then. But he came from absolutely nowhere. And he would have played his whole career making very modest, some, some nice contracts in counter cricket. But he, wouldn't have, he was certainly never going to be one of the highest paid players. So what a great story for him to be able to finish up there. Um, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of other players now. Uh, we'll, we'll start with, basically, Basil Dolivera is obviously incredibly famous as, you know, uh, he's referred to as a Cape Color player in South Africa, obviously went on to be a, a player uh, for England um, and had a, he had a huge political influence on, on, on the world, really, by being a cricketer, despite not being a very political man himself. But he wasn't the only player, uh, non-white player, who, who was very good. And I, I, one of the, the first great non-white players was a left-arm finger spinner called Lefty Davis, who very few people outside of South Africa would know much about. What can you tell me? Oh, sorry, Lefty Adams, sorry. Lefty Davis was a pitcher oh, really? in <laughs> baseball. Um, sorry, there's not that many people called Lefty, let's be honest here. Uh, Lefty Adams, um, yeah, le- left-arm finger spinner. Uh, could you take us through his career? He played in the 70s, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Um, Abdurrahman Lefty Adams is uh, his full name. Uh, but the background, the reason I picked uh, Lefty Adams and Vince Barnes is just to give our listeners who may not be aware uh, some background of non-white cricket, as it was called then. The South African Cricket Board was... Uh, and, and the league structure existed, and not just leagues around the various cities around the country, but but inter-provincial championships. Now, remember, we're talking about apartheid South Africa. So for non-whites to travel around the country was exceptionally difficult. They, 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 you know, they weren't allowed in, in airports, and they had to travel second class by train or in combis, as we call them, um, minivans. And they would drive from Cape Town to Johannesburg for Western Province to play against Transvaal. I mean, the, the hardship that they had to endure. Then, of course, they had to play in... Um, really inferior facilities, often on matting wickets, you know, bare outfields. In in summer, the grass wouldn't grow, and it was really, really tough. But the Interprovincial Championship still existed. It was called the Hauer Bowl, 
um, and that was the non-wide equivalent of the Curry Cup. So these people went through incredible hardship in order to play the game that they loved. And retrospectively, and this is as a historian, I'd love you to share your your views with our listeners, because retrospectively, Power Bowl fixtures were awarded first-class status. In the, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, they were not regarded as first-class games. Um, and as I said, the pitches were left a lot to be desired, um, and the outfields did as well. So not surprisingly, there's some amazing bowling figures. But if you averaged 30 in the Howard Bowl as a batsman, you were regarded as, as like really, really top-notch. Well, so Lefty Adams, 122 first-class wickets at 15.5. Uh, Vincent Barnes, we'll get on to him in a moment, 323 wickets at 11.95. So it, it does tell you, look, I... I it's obviously not quite first-class standard, as we know, but there's a lot of cricket around the world that has been played that is not first-class standard. Um, In South Africa now. Yeah, <laughs> provincial cricket. Provincial cricket is a perfect one. Uh, there's, you know, um, quite often there's uh, first-class games, I think, uh, you know, between, ca between Canada and other teams in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, there's obviously university cricket in, in the UK. There's a lot of cricket that shouldn't, that shouldn't be called first-class. But it does give you a bit of an idea. If you're averaging 15 with the ball um, over a decade, and with Vincent Barnes, if you're averaging 12 with the ball, we know that these guys had phenomenal talent. And Vincent Barnes continued to play. He actually played against Goffey. So Goffey came over in 91, 92. He took a couple of wickets in, and he was well past his best. So Vincent Barnes, can you, he was a fast bowler with a slinging action. Can you give me much more information? Swung it. Yeah, just swung it brilliantly. Not quite Lasset Malinga, but, you know, was quite round-armed. And he became the national bowling coach uh, for... So his... His Howard Bowl figures are slightly different, uh, 287 wickets at 11.3. And then he played for Western Province in, under the United Cricket Board of South Africa, played uh, a dozen or so more games, finished up with 323 wickets at 11.95. So actually, I saw him play um, in those early days for Western Province. And he was in his late 30s, so well past his best. But, you know, just magic skill. You could really, uh, you could see what... Cricket South Africa as it was to become and what cricket in South Africa had missed um, and you know as Vinci, Vincent Barnes and Lefty Adams will tell you they were just two amongst thousands and thousands of cricketers who were highly highly talented and never got the chance so I might get the name wrong there was another one Saeed Majit is that it I think he, he yeah, yeah. Sa Sajid Majid yeah. and his brother Rushdi became the convener of selectors for South Africa incredible in the mid-90s. And I'm going to take it further back to that, and it's an incredible story of a man called Crom Hendricks, who, I, was he, was he uh, from Cape Town? Was he Cape Caliph? Yes, he was. Yeah, so he's a, a Malay uh, from, from Cape Town, and he... It's worth repeating, isn't it? When we, Cape Colored is, uh, they were, th th they are indigenous to Cape Town Correct. initially, indentured labourers brought in from M Malaysia in that region. So they are called Cape Coloured and very proud of that. I and know that's a... It sounds weird to English, to English people, yeah, yeah, definitely. But so he, he was such a good bowler that in 1893 or 1894, when South Africa were touring England, they actually offered him a spot to tour uh, with, with the team. But he was only allowed to tour with the team if he told everyone that he was travelling as, as the butler of the team so it does show you how long that the history of non-white cricket has been around in South Africa and, and you can only imagine how many cricketers have been missed um, 
so I think we've covered them quite well. I, I'd like to talk about the women's team a little bit as well. So when I first really got into women's cricket, I was absolutely shocked at how poor South African women's cricket was. Didn't make any sense. Um, that's how Sri Lanka were doing quite well, and um, India were, were, were obviously an up-and-coming team. And, and the South African team struggled for a long time. And just of, over the last, what, four to five years, there's been a huge jump forward. In fact, they just beat New Zealand yesterday, and New Zealand are an absolute powerhouse of, of women's cricket. And Laura Wolfhart, uh, who we call the Wolfhart, um, made 91, and she might go on to be one of the best players in the world. And she's only 20. And a massive crossroads in her life because uh, she's been offered a place, earned a place at Stellenbosch University. Um, and so was it as a lawyer? That's right, yeah. to study law. Yeah, I study mean, she's law. a very, very smart uh, smart lady. She um, would be a huge loss to women's cricket if she doesn't play because she will go on to be I know, but, one of the but, best, but, biggest stars. But, but she's going to make a lot more money as a very smart lawyer than she is in the women's game in South Africa. Um, yeah, but you say that, but where, where's your passion lie? You could be a lawyer when you're 35. <laughs> Actually, you, you'd probably be a pretty good women's player when you're 30. You could be a lawyer when you're 45. i tell you what, South, South African... The South African women's team has made astonishing strides. If you'd told me that they would be where they are now six years ago, I'd have, I'd have had you certified. Because the domestic game in, is virtually non-existent. The administration, and dare I say, without offending people, I, I will offend people, South Africa is still a very sexist society. Um, a long way behind many of the other cricket-playing countries. And... Um, and, and the men's game takes massive, massive priority. I'm delighted to say that that, that is changing and has started to fundamentally change in the last five years. Momentum came on, the financial services provider, as the sponsor of the women's team. They, they sponsored initially. They said, well, well, we'll sponsor six professional contracts. But then they soon realized that, how do you choose six? Well, I mean, that's not a thing, is it? You have six professionals and, and six or seven amateurs in a squad. So they made that 12. And um, and now, for I don't know, I don't, cannot imagine how they do it. As I said, the domestic structure is so so poor for women's game. But eight of the South African ladies got won uh, places in franchises in the women's big bash league. It, it's been incredible. I, I think it actually. I think the women's team is probably maybe one of the best stories when it comes to you know how much um, South Africa has changed as a nation. So you've got Adane Van Neerkirk, who is the captain. Oh, I'll do the pronunciations for did you. Did I get I? all of that wrong? <laughs> Dane Van Neerkirk. Yes. That's exactly right. what I said. Sort of, <laughs> in an Australian accent. Marizan Cup. Um, they are so, so. So that's captain and star all rounder essentially. Um, and vice captain. Yeah, and, and Cap's an incredible player. Um, you know, uh, she's I'm trying to think. She's almost a Sean Pollock type player, isn't she? She almost never bowls a ball, uh, you know, a, an incorrect ball when she bowls, and a very, very good hitter of the ball. You know, um, so very good with the bat as well. They're married, uh, which are, which is an incredible thing. Um, and then you take it further, as you said, you've got the eight women playing professionally in in Australia. They also quite a few of those play professionally in the UK as well. Um, and then you've got Shabnam Ismail, who has many, many, many times claimed to be the fastest woman, woman's bowler in the world. I'm not sure she is, but I love the fact she claims it. Again, she's a, a non-white player. It shows just how much this game has changed in South Africa. That we're in a position where we're literally talking about women's cricket. We're talking about you know gay marriage, and we're talking about a non-white a, a non woman who bowls very fast, and more importantly, boasts about how fast she is. I'm not sure how fast she is, but she has, she's told me to my face twice that she's the fastest bowler in the world. 
Um, she has to be top three. Yeah, she's top three. That's all right. Definitely. I mean, she bowls about 125 kilometers an hour. Yeah, uh, it's very whippy Vernon action. Vernon Philander pace. She, she might be quicker than Vernon. I tell you what, I reckon she bowls longer spells than Vernon as well. Um, she uh, and, and just to show how far the team has come, I mean, we've talked about all that. If you remember, England won the, the, the Women's World Cup final. It was an incredible moment for women's cricket um, because of what happened with India and, uh, and England winning the game after Anya Shrubsol. Well, in the semi-final, um, it came down to the last over and it was Anya Shrubsol, eight wickets down, who hit the boundary that actually put um, England into that final. South Africa really shouldn't have lost that game they, they were they, they were winning that game I thought they played really well all the way through South Africa and then Anya Shrubsal just got England over the line at the end so it you know you know to be in this ground uh, you know the Wanderers yesterday and to have you know such an incredible I, I mean I came first came to the Wanderers in 2003 um, and I've, I've, I've you know been to South African cricket quite a bit you generally come in and you have very white crowds um, and to come in yesterday and have so many children and have so many women and have so many people of different ethnicities and then have the, now am I going to get this right, right? the Guija Choir? Guija Band. Guija yeah. Band. Have them singing all day. For me, I, I just, it was one of my top, it was one of the, one of the favorite moments I've had in cricket. And, you know, we get a bit uh, cynical as cricket people. We, you know, we travel around the world, we see so much cricket. Um, you know, but for me, I put that up there with seeing Ireland's first test. We're seeing um, Afghanistan uh, play their first game in the World Cup um, and, the, and the Women's World Cup final. Um, you know, being in this ground yesterday, uh, it was an incredible, uh, uh, you know, thing for me. But how is it to be a South African, you know, and, and see how much the game has changed? Just to confirm that having been, you know, covering South African cricket uh, for, from, for the post-isolation era, that was the best day of test cricket we've had at the Wanderers by a mile. And uh, th th so that's, it's including what happens on the field, but I must say that the atmosphere during the day, throughout the day, was absolutely magnificent. And cricket is changing fundamentally and profoundly in, in the, the country. And in fact, in many ways, it's, it's leading overall change in society, as you just said. Um, you know, there are, there, are, there are changes, fundamental changes taking place. And I must say that for all their troubles and strife and for all the criticism that uh, I think Cricket South Africa as a board and uh, board of directors deserve, they are actually at the forefront of, um, of bringing age group cricket and uh, women's cricket and transformation to, to the fore. I mentioned this during a, a lunch interview with uh, Mark Butcher and Lungani Zama a couple of days ago. Remember that for all your thoughts about transformation and quotas in South African cricket, up until 1990 there was a very, very large quota that applied to every South African team. That was 11 white people. Mostly male. Well, exactly. Entirely. I don't think women's cricket was a thing in South Africa before that. Fascinating stuff. We'll be revisiting that uh, at the end of the year when we're in India. Five Indian cricketers you've never heard of. You can put that uh, date in your diary. That pretty much brings us to the end of the show, though. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, as mentioned earlier on, with a full preview to the ODI series, hearing from the likes of Owen Morgan and also Quinton de Kock ahead of the three-match ODI series. But for now, that's it. Thanks for listening to the following on podcast. Uh, review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or download and uh, listen to Acast or indeed on TalkSport.com. But you've been listening to the following on podcast. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados 
is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.